We are starting a new sermon series, um, which will be interesting, fun, difficult, challenging, and uh, we'll be having lots of guest speakers this month. My goal was not just to take off preaching. That's not really my goal. Um, My goal was to have just a a multiplicity of voices that are pretty much local um, from this area, not, you know, hire celebrity people to come in, like people from this local area that are trying their best to live out this kingdom life Jesus lived and that are uh, maybe a little more, uh, have some expertise in some of these areas, but it's a sermon series really about just cultural engagement. I don't know if there's any Bob Dylan fans in the house, but the times are a-changing, right? Um, I think we, we know that's true. The pace of change is quite incredible. Uh, it's just amplifying, I'm not even old, but I feel old because I don't know what's happening in the world half the time, and I feel old. So how do we engage culture responsibly that the idea in this sermon series is to equip you with uh, biblical resources? Um, I've, I've talked about Pastor Google before. Um, you can find a lot of things on Pastor Google, including a lot of things that claim to be Christian and um, maybe a little bit is of the Christian, but a lot of it isn't, right? A bad teaching has been a part of the church since the very beginning. Many of those New Testament letters were written to combat, combat bad teaching. And so um, as we enter into the fall, I thought it necessary just to spend about a month or so talking about some of these difficult cultural subjects in order to, to give you biblical grounding, to equip you to navigate them as Christians in this tricky world. So this first sermon really is about life in the kingdom of God. What is, uh, you know, developing a theology, if you will, of life. What is life in light of the teachings of Jesus, in light of Scripture, right? Um, Jesus himself is an example. He is the example of how to navigate this, this broken, fallen world as a human being, right, where the kingdom way of living, no matter what nation on earth that it is, clashes with the kingdom of God. All throughout Jesus' ministry, this occurred. This is kind of why he was murdered, right? Because uh, the way of God and his kingdom clashed with the way of the world, and he found himself uh, nailed to a tree. This is what Jesus said about life. One of many verses I could read. John chapter 10, 7 through 10. Apologies for no slides today. Um, I just didn't have time, and so hate me, sorry. John 10, 7 through 10 says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Verse nine here, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10 is what I want to kind of aim at here. The thief, which is Satan, he comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and life abundantly and have life abundantly. The thief came to steal, to kill, destroy. I came that they may have life and life abundantly. The scriptures, you know, I think part of the challenge of 2022 in the world we live in is we don't know what it means to be a person 
to be alive, right? There's always the questions of why are we here and those more existential things. I'm talking about just a, what is the human being? Like, who are we as people? I don't, I mean, that's the most confusing question for our culture today. And the most simplistic way to approach this this morning as Christians is to ensure that we're grounded on the very first page of our scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you have God creating all of humanity or all of this world, all the life in it. But then he creates humanity and he says something special, right? Male and female, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female in the image of God. Squirrels aren't in the image of God, right? Zebras aren't in the image of God. Human beings are in the image of God. You know what that means? That none of you are a biological accident that just came about through natural purposes that just kind of happened and millions of years later, poof, there you are. No, you're not by accident. You are an image bearer of the loving, divine creator God. And as Jesus said, the the thief, Satan, he comes to kill and steal and to destroy, right? God created life. Satan comes to bring the opposite, right? We see this on page three of our Bibles, okay? In chapter three of Genesis, when the serpent showed up in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the Garden of Eden, and he approaches Adam and Eve, and, and, and God set up this tree, right? You probably know the story. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was kind of a test. God said, look, you aren't God. You're my creation. There's things that belong to me and things that I have given over as stewardship to you. This world, take care of it, multiply, be good stewards of it, right? But there's knowledge of good and evil that's mine. Do you trust me? That was my paraphrase of God's words, right? It's basically what's going on. Do you trust me as my creation to not want to be me? Because you can't handle it. You're not created to handle the things that belong to me. And the serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve to say, you're not, he said you're like him. You're created in his image. Eh, maybe not. Maybe he's holding back what you could be, right? He's holding back his true likeness from you. You can be truly like God if you eat the tree. And God said, if you do that, you'll, you'll find death. You'll choose death. And Satan, once he cultivated that, he tempted them, he brought them to it, and thus death and the fall entered our story. Now, all throughout history and scripture, okay, we see death, we see conflict, We see tribalism, we see violence, we see this group against that group, we see chaos, we see disorder, all these things that come from the work of the devil, from the work of his kingdom that is in this world. But, you know, what's really fascinating is when, you know, Jesus shows up on the scene, everything, uh, one one Bible teacher that I respect calls it, you know, um, I don't know if he made it up, I don't know if he made it up, but this, if you read the teachings of Jesus, you'll find that the way he talked about life was completely upside down as to how we see it in this fallen world. We talk about it often here, almost weekly, that wherever a church is found is supposed to be a glimpse of the kingdom of God that is breaking into this world, 
right? It's like we kind of have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth, okay? The reality of life in heaven, of the love and the purity and the joy, right? All the, and the peace, all those things that are found in heaven is intended by the help of the Holy Spirit to be found in God's people today. Then when we turn from our sins and become a Christian and God gives us his Holy Spirit that we are supposed to be entering into the, the eternal life of heaven now in this moment, today. And we're empowered for that purpose. But that kind of life It's upside down from the life that society and culture, nations all throughout history have taught, have shown, and have enforced. Um, Just for a a really easy example of this is in Matthew chapter 5. We we are really familiar with these words, but I don't think that we've actually just really thought about how radical, no matter where you are on earth, like who teaches this stuff, right? Listen, you've heard it that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pause. Okay. Whether or not that that phrase, okay, in our current day and age, that's kind of, I mean, I I joke with my kids all the time, right? It's like every movie, what's this movie about, dad? It's about good guys versus bad guys, and the good guys eventually are going to win, right? And that's kind of the simplistic answer of like every movie, right? There's good and there's evil. There's, there's the enemy. You don't like your enemy. They're the bad guys. You overcome your enemy and the good guys win. And it's just this kind of dualism of, of you know, your, the, the, the people on your side and your enemies. And nowhere do you have in the history somebody teaching, oh, those people who are after you, who are your enemies, who are maybe trying to kill you, you need to love them. What incentive would you possibly have for loving somebody who's out to get you. What incentive do you have? Well, if they're in the image of God and they're crafted and made in the image of God and there's a chance that the Messiah who came to earth, who died for our sins, that that person's heart could find and see the love that is available, the eternal life that is available to him, or her and find a new way of thinking about what it means to be a human being. And that, can, might, that might happen if, as they're after me, I am down on my knees washing their feet, maybe telling them the truth about their sin, but loving them? Well, there's an incentive. Isn't that what Jesus drove him to the cross? Because wasn't that our story? Right? Weren't we sinners who were living, uh, you know, not in light of God, but as if, you know, we were in charge of our own lives, and, but we were saved out of that, Right? Nobody talks about life in this way, but Jesus' teachings are completely upside down, right? And there's, there's, there's um, the way he navigates this upside down way of kingdom living in this world. These are some of those fascinating verses or phrase really that I, when I think of just the hardest part of who Jesus is, it really comes down to John 1, 14. It's so fascinating to me. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus navigated the kingdom, this inbreaking kingdom into this world, into this fallen world, with grace and truth. Those two things don't appear that they should belong in the same sentence, right? Who's ever had a hard truth spoken to them, right? Is that like a fun thing? Or would you look back and say like, oh, what a gracious thing that person did. That's probably not your first thought, right? That's probably not your first thought. 
But those two things are together with Jesus. And his just elegance and just mastery. I mean, he truly was the master, right? The God incarnate. As he walked in this life, he found a way to look at people and just with probably welling up tears full of love would tell that rich young ruler, you gotta sell your stuff, man. It's ruining you. I'm telling you this because I love you, but you gotta walk away from your stuff because you're bowing down to it as if it's an idol. And I'm telling you this because I love you right? That's our God, full of grace and full of truth, right? There is a confrontational nature of the kingdom of God. Wherever the kingdom of God shows up, there's a message that's preached of repentance of sin, like we have to turn from our sin and embrace the life that Jesus has given us, this kingdom breaking to this world, and it involves you turning for many of the things in our life that we have grown accustomed to and to embrace by the help of the Spirit the ways of the kingdom in our own life that confronts. And not a lot, sometimes people aren't interested, right? They don't want to turn. And that's been the case, obviously, throughout history, right? So we don't deny that. But the grace aspect, we can also ignore. Grace to say it's okay to show up in the church service if the night before you just committed adultery, and you wake up feeling dirty and looking for hope. Are you welcome here in a place like this? The answer is yes, you are. Our tables should be open to addicts, to the homeless, to those struggling with whatever it might be, right? These are image bearers of God to whom there is always hope for if they meet Jesus, right? And this is when the church becomes rubbing up against the grain of society because there are clearly different things in our society today that, you know, they don't teach the certain people groups should really be spending time with this people group, right? Um, I could go into an hour-long sermon describing all those nuances in our culture, right? But you know exactly the things that I'm talking about today. But I want to look at just one story here, if I can. I have a guest speaker here today who's going to really, I'll make sure I give him plenty of time because I want you to hear his story. Um, we're going to look at um, a moving story, okay? This is found in Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, um, you can turn to that. I do have a, a, um, a slightly different translation on my paper than our pew Bibles, but um, you can follow along. It's going to be on page 1023 in your Bibles, beginning in verse 36. All right, so it's just a, a moving story of Jesus. All right, this is the word of the Lord. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. All right, he's chilling, he's hanging out, having food. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, very expensive, costly. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume over them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, oh, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman 
she is, that she's a sinner. So a woman who lived a sinful life. Okay, this is a prostitute. I want to read this carefully, like pay attention to this carefully. There's amazing, moving things happening in this story. Jesus was invited to dine at the house of his Pharisee. Now, maybe you know, right, Pharisees were some of the religious leaders of the day. They had half this thing memorized, right? They knew every single law there was to keep and their dress and their way of life. Like every nook and corner or cranny of the Mosaic law, man, they just mastered to the T plus, right? They made up many more laws that they thought were kind of like fences to guard the real laws that can make sure they don't break the real laws by not breaking these other five other laws. And it was just this crazy kind of heavy like burden of a life that was almost impossible. It was impossible indeed to keep up with, but those were the Pharisees, okay? They believed in God. They understood God was their authority, right? But all these unnecessary religious roles just guided them day by day, which really ultimately, if I can say this, it kind of led to what Satan brings into this world, which is ultimately the sometimes slow or whatever it looks like, the killing, the, 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 the stealing and the destroying, right? Um, we know laws are meant to be broken. Our human heart is broke, right? Laws don't fix our human heart. And so Satan, you know, in this time, he really was at work, I believe, like using these, these unwritten laws to kind of enslave um, in that day and age. And Jesus came to break people free of that kind of religion that was present at that time to tell them the truth about what it means to be a child of God. But this prostitute, of course, had no semblance of this religious way of living in her own life. She knew who the Pharisees were. She knew that they would say, you're unclean. You're you're outside of the community. You're unclean, right? Her ways were antithetical to these Pharisaical people, right? And of course it was antithetical to the ways of God. But here's the amazing thing, all right? Word gets out that Jesus is at this guy's house, That's worthy of note, too. The Pharisees are some of the ones who, you know, chanted to get Jesus killed, and here's Jesus eating with them. That's worthy of this little side note in your brain. But apparently, this woman was not invited. She hears a rumor, and she shows up uninvited, and as they're eating, okay, they're hanging out, talking over lunch, perhaps she, she, you know, they're reclining, they're sitting down, she, she walks in, and she gets down, and she gets so low that she's at the level of Jesus' feet, right? And she starts weeping. Now, just think of this picture, okay? This woman off the streets just walks in uninvited. And if you pay attention, like this isn't just like the, a little tear. This is like that nasty, like, <gasps> kind of cry, okay? Because his feet are getting soaked with tears. This woman is losing it. She is broken, and she's down on the ground in front of the nasty feet of Jesus, because everybody's feet was nasty in those days. There was no sewers, and the streets were kind of like the sewers, so you walk around with sandals, yeah, your feet are gross. And she knows that, and she's down, just weeping. And she almost gets embarrassed, it looks like, because she gets her hair and she wipes the, the tears off because she wants something more, more grand to be on his feet, which is this bottle of perfume, presumably purchased by the money she earned from her living, very costly. And she starts pouring it over Jesus' feet. 
The Pharisees saw this, right? And their first thought was interesting. They said, well, this is a test to see if Jesus really is from God or not. Because if he is from God, he's going to know who she is. Because if he knew who she was, like he wouldn't be letting her do this, obviously. That was kind of the thought going on in the Pharisees' mind. She had no dignity in their eyes. Do you see this? She had no dignity in the eyes of these religious people. And keep in mind, this woman didn't show up to wash the feet of the Pharisees. That's not why she came to see them, right? If we pay attention to her tears and see her brokenness and her pain and her hurting, just looking for hope, hearing about this man who had healed people, who had spent time with the blind and the lame, the other outcasts of society, right, that that day and age kind of cut off as unclean as well. Like she heard the possibility of receiving love for him and the truth of what it means to know God and even finding acceptance and hope through this man. She heard of this and it drove her to him she came looking for Jesus right and Jesus never shied away from telling people like her the truth time and time again we see him in scripture with people like her that comes to him and he gives them the grace and the love but he says go and sin no more right you got got to turn from this but there's hope for the forgiveness of sins through knowing me right? He looks at her, if we can continue on in this story, there's a little kind of talk he gives um, to this Pharisee about forgiveness of sin and, you know, how this Pharisee wasn't quite, you know, he didn't come so broken to Jesus, right? Because he wasn't very soft to his own sin, but boy, she was. And he's kind of pointing out that her state of her own sensitivity to her need for God is a much better state to be in than that of the Pharisee. And so he kind of turns the tide and says, you religious person, pay attention, she's the ideal. (laughs) Okay, this prostitute, how she's coming to me, that's the ideal approach to God. He's kind of propping her up as somebody to pay attention to and to mimic, which is a fascinating turn of events in the conversation that uh, was unexpected of the Pharisee. And this is what he tells this woman, verse 49. Um, verse 48 at the end of it he says Jesus said to her your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven there were sins in her life Jesus acknowledges that and says they're forgiven verse 49 the other guests begin to say among themselves who is this that can even forgive sins who does this guy think he is verse 50 Jesus said to the woman your faith has saved you she needed saving. He tells her the truth. You have sin. You need saving. But your, your faith has saved you. You can leave here now in peace. Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, oh, you're, you're fine, like as a prostitute, like, whatever, whatever. It's all just love, man. Like, you're good. You can just leave here in peace. Don't, just be who you are. Like, no, he doesn't go that route. That's the cheap love of our culture right? That just says, like, be whoever you are. It's all good. And maybe you're like, you know, the way I'm living is kind of, like, destroying me. Like, I don't know. Like, is there other news out there? Like, this is real love here, right? Yes, you're saved. There's sin in your life, but go and sin no more, right? Go in peace and your faith and your salvation that you have, right? This is elegance in Jesus, grace and truth held together. And I believe as we navigate these complex cultural conversations of today, 
This is a foundational block that we need. She's an image bearer of God that the church, through grace and truth, can love and still communicate the truth to. Now, here's the questions I have before I call up my friend here. If the church is the body of Christ today, do broken people like her still see us as a place they can even crawl to in their brokenness, trying to find hope? Have we developed a relationship with our society, or a, a reputation, rather, that that's how we're thought of? It's like, oh, those Christians, man, like I'm really stuck in just some bad ways in life, and I need hope. Yes, Christians, like I want to go to them. I don't know, friends. I don't know if that's our reputation. Some of you, I know that you have garnered that reputation. I spend time with many of you, and I know that people in your life actually do go to you. So I'm not saying that the whole church is, you know, I don't want to bash the church for no reason here. But generally speaking, I'm not sure if we've garnered the reputation that, oh, there's a Christian in the house down the street. I'm looking for hope. I want to run and just kind of like, just go there. Like Jesus was, when this woman heard that he was down the street, she went straight to him looking for hope. Do we have that reputation Friends, is it too late for us to rebuild that reputation of a place of grace that you're still going to hear truth, but grace is available? Can we rebuild this, friends? Can we find this? I do believe that we can. All people are image bearers of God, and if we keep this in mind, it will equip us with navigating the cultural complexities of our day and how we interact with the LGBT community right, with all these just complicated issues of today, right, that if, if, if a neighbor of yours is, you know, living in that lifestyle, like, is your table open to them to have dinner with, right? Your worldview is very different than theirs, I'm presuming. Is your table open to them still, right? Can you befriend them in love and in grace? And opportunities for speak truth will come and take them, sure. But do you know how to befriend people, right? like this? Because once again, like if you're discipled by our culture um, and our nation today, like we're discipled to be against certain groups of people and no vision to really be a neighbor to them. But Jesus shows us. He says, no, you, you pray even for if there's an enemy in your life, you pray for them, you, you, you seek them out, you love them, right? And people flock to Jesus who are broken and have hope. And maybe I'm naive. I really think that we can do this again, friends. Because the way our culture is going, it's going to become only more broken, only more dark, and people are going to be chewed up and spit out by it and looking around saying, surely there's more to life out there than what that offered to me. It's not the first time in history. I think we can rise to the moment. Um, so I want to transition to a friend of mine, close friend of mine that I've invited from uh, Jersey today that uh, I don't know how many years I've known him at this point, but... He's kind of made it his ministry to help in this specific area, all right? Um, Gregory Andrus is here. Um, he runs an organization, I guess we can call it, called Portraits of the Jersey Shore. He has about 33,000 uh, followers, mostly local to his area um, online. He's interviewed uh, thousands of people on the boardwalks of New Jersey beaches. Um, he gets their stories. He simply takes their name and without context or anything, just posts it right? And an effort just for people to hear other people's stories, right? These are some of the things that Jesus 
did, right? He, would, he was known for listening and spending time and eating dinner and having, spending time with people, right? Um, he's published numerous books. He's still continually active in his work. He's a dear brother in Christ as well. And so we're going to hear his story this morning. Can we do that? So Gregory, can I have you come up? Um, this is Gregory Andrus, everybody. I want to ask you something. Is my hair looking as good as his beard? That's it's, it's trying, okay? Because my, my beard is white, so I'm not going to, you know. All right. Thank you. He drove in almost two hours to get here this morning because he's that awesome. Because Delaware. I mean, we're in the first state. My boys are so excited to be here today. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, uh, he has a wild testimony. Can we first hear your story? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, all of you, um, for the light that you are in your community. Um, I, I, I know how proud Daniel is of all of you um, and the Christ that lives within you. So thank you for that. I did not grow up in the church. I did not even come to the church until I was 29. I grew up in a home that was very violent. I was not safe there. I turned to alcohol by the time I was 13 to escape mentally what I was experiencing. By the time I was 16, I was in a month-long rehab for alcoholism. Um, Treating the symptom, not the cause, though, when I was 18, at Christmas time, um, the, by the time I was a teenager, my father and I, we were like really at odds. I was getting bigger. He was still a very large man. We, was, things were very tense with us all the time. Finally, at Christmas time, he told off our whole family, and then I, in turn, told him off. And I remember to this day, him chasing me down the street, punching me in the head, punching me in the face, and... I left home, and I didn't see him again for another 10 years. I came back the next day to get my stuff. Everything I owned was all over our front lawn. Um, and that was it. And I lived a life of alcoholism and on-again, off-again homelessness for the next 10 years. I was in punk bands. I was in different relationships. I tried Alcoholics Anonymous. I talked to different counselors and therapists and psychiatrists, all to try to turn my life around. But none of it helped as much as they wanted to help. The pain that dwelled inside my heart and the demons that attacked my mind were so strong that nothing of this world seemed to be able to help. When I was 28 years old, I was outside of a party in New Brunswick where Rutgers is, and it was more in the kind of like the, the seedier side of town, and there was a police chase by car around the corner. The person, the suspect who was being pursued crashed his car, he turned the corner, fled down the street right past me. I was on the sidewalk. He ran right past me in the street. The police officer who was chasing him turned the corner, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, 
very dark. He discharged his weapon. He fired his gun at the suspect. The next thing I knew, I was in the street, my head in some young lady's lap, and the pain in the back of my head was excruciating. And people around me crying and screaming, and I realized, oh my God, I was the one who was shot. And I realized that my whole life meant nothing, that this was how I was going to die. Um, but I didn't. And the very doctor who removed the bullet from my skull said to me, you are a miracle. And I was able to live again, and I was able to walk again and talk and everything. And I spent the next however many months trying to figure out who this God was that saved me. I knew it was God, but I didn't know who he was. And I tried all these different religions. Name one. It doesn't matter what it was, except for Christianity, because I didn't want to be one of those Jesus freaks. And every single religion would tell me that if I could take these steps, I could get closer to God. I could get closer to Nirvana. I can get closer to... But I was like, man, I can't even take a step in my own life just to get food. How am I supposed to take the right steps so I can get closer to God? And meanwhile, I kept getting stabbing pains in my head, excruciating, debilitating pain in my head. And I was just like, you know what? Like at any point in time, I could get an aneurysm or something, and I could still die. I have shrapnel in my head from this bullet. And my sister, who was in YWAM, Youth with a Mission, she was traveling around the world as a missionary. And this woman I was dating, her father was a born-again Christian. She was a Christian, too. But she was one of the cool ones, okay? Um, and so there were people that were praying for me. And eventually, I reached a point of such fear of dying, really dying this time, that I said, you know what, Jesus? I said a prayer with, with my sister on the phone. I said, Jesus, I don't know if you are real or not, but if you are real, would you please change my life? And then my sister sent, you know, a Bible to me, and I started reading the Bible. And, and I remember my girlfriend at the time, she had to teach me, you know, because we were going, started going to church, and, you know, they were like, open up to John 3.16. I was like, wait, where's John? Who is John? And, and where's, what's 3.16? What are you talking about? What chapter? You know, so I had to learn how to read the Bible. But the Bible was so alive to me. It was three-dimensionals. It was as if I could pick up the people in the Bible and look at them sitting right in front of me. They were so real. And before I knew it, I became one of those Jesus freaks and have been for the last 20 years. <laughs> and footnote, that woman I was dating is now my wife of over 20 years with my two boys over there. They are all here. So, um, and you know what's fascinating? I am still that sinner. I'm still that person who desperately needs Jesus. I mess up all the time. If you don't believe me, ask my boys. They will be happy to tell you all the times that I mess up. But I try. I want to really be close to Jesus because I know the closer I get to Jesus, the more likely people will see Jesus in me, the people who need him. One other aside, 
At my baptism, my father came. And I remember after I got baptized, meanwhile, by the way, as I got baptized, people who were there will tell you it was a stormy day. After I got baptized, clouds broke, rainbows, the whole thing. Not a lie. That happened. Just God letting me know he was with me. And I'm walking with my dad back to the car. We're just talking about stupid stuff, just like weather. What do you talk about with somebody you've been talking to in 10 years? And all of a sudden, the spirit hit me. And I said to my dad out of the blue, I had no idea I was going to say this. I said to him, I said, Dad, I just want you to know I forgive you. And then this six-foot, 240-pound man just starts sobbing. And I'm sobbing. We're hugging each other. And that's Jesus. That's what Jesus does. And we, we've, we've become friends over the years. He's still not perfect. There's still things about him that upsets me. That I still have nightmares about my childhood that still upset me, but I don't hold it against him anymore. You know, I know he did the best he could with the demons that he carried from his own childhood, which was even worse than what I carried. Um, the one thing I knew is that I didn't want to have kids because I didn't want to do to them what had happened to me in the chaining. But finally, when I was 39 years old, we had our first son, Jacob, and then three years later, our second son, Elijah. And I can tell you to this day, I've never, ever hit them and, 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 and any of those things. I still will, if they really get on my nerves, I'll yell at them. So, I mean, progress, not perfection. But they don't know what I knew. I'll tell them stories. They're like, oh my God, why would Grandpa do that? I'm like, because he didn't know any other better, you know? And may my son's generation be even better than what I have with them today. But Jesus is real. And I'm not going to use some kind of logic like science and stuff like that. But what I will do is tell them who I was and who I am today. I still wear shoes with holes in them because it reminds me of where I come from. When I see a homeless person, I see my brother. I see my sister. I see my family. But by the grace of God, I'm not there anymore. That's good. So that's my story. Thank you for asking. That's good. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so briefly, you know, describe what Portraits of the Jersey Shore is and also why did you start it? Yeah, so I always wanted to be a pastor. I went to a four-year Bible college <clears throat> in Nyack College um, to be a pastor. But after I graduated, that door never opened. Like God was just like, you are not going to be a pastor. And I tried. I really wanted to be a pastor. For me, I wanted to be up here preaching God's word and reaching people. But for 10 years, that didn't happen. I was like, God, what do you want for me to do? I just want people to see Jesus. And I was getting really depressed. So I took my very first iPhone. It was like an iPhone 4, you know? This was seven years ago. And I started taking pictures on it of just, we live this shore, some beautiful areas there, some beautiful scenery. And I started posting it on my Facebook page, you know, with my 200 friends. But they started telling me, you know what, you're a really good photographer. And... I had no idea I was. I didn't know anything about the photography. But I believed them. And finally, I said, does anybody have a used camera you would want to sell, uh, sell me you know, for 50 bucks? A week later, a UPS driver came to my house, brown box. I opened it up, and it was a brand new Nikon D3200 with an interchangeable lens worth $500 at the time. And tears came to my eyes, and I knew it was from God. 
And it was anonymously sent to me. And I spent a year just taking pictures, studying it, watching YouTube, taking classes and stuff like that to know photography. And then my friend said after a year, you should do what the guy's doing in New York City. Go up to people, ask them about themselves, and share it. And I started doing that. I would go up to someone and say, hi, my name is Gregory. I have a page called Portraits of the Jersey Shore where I interview people and share the stories online. And I would just ask three questions if they said yes. What are you most excited about in life right now? What was one of the happiest moments of your life? And what was one of the most difficult moments of your life? And 3,000 interviews later, I can tell you, every single answer is different. Now maybe there are people who all have shared the, the, the rest of losing a loved one or alcoholism, but every single story of that is unique to that person. And God, in his own cunning, had established a ministry where they weren't coming to my church. I was going out to them and bringing Jesus to them. Because when they're telling me about, Je- about what their life is, I'm able to say, well, let me tell you about myself after they're done. And in five minutes, I'm able to tell them about the Jesus who saved my life, who saved my soul. And then we're hugging at the end. Hundreds of people. God never wanted me to be a peer like Pastor Daniel, and that's a, no, that's a beautiful work. That's all I wanted. But God said that my story needs to go out to the people who are not coming to church. And that's what I do. Who knew? But God, right? Um, as a Christian, how has this work shaped and challenged your views of engaging culture and even evangelism as a Christian? Well, one, and I, and I try to be very careful not to be critical. This is not criticism. It's more of like a hope. Can we as a church find ways to leave our pews when we leave to go out to where the people are and meet them? I'll never forget I was at a Wawa. Is that, do you have Wawa here? If you don't, I'm so sorry. You do? Yes! Wawa is awesome. Okay. I'm, it's, it's Jesus we, we, family We don't Wawa. like, you know, like worship there like in New Jersey. Yeah, but yeah, they are exactly. Here, so. Okay, Wawa is really special to us because it's work. Okay, so I was at a checkout counter in Wawa. I was getting my coffee. And there was this woman there, and, and I just asked her, how are you doing? It was morning. I wanted to get the, you know, people wanted to get, you know, there's a line behind me. And you know what? She told me. She was living in a shelter with her two kids for women and children of domestic violence. I was like, oh my gosh. Now, there's a line behind me, and I, have, I want to learn more. So I go back in the back of the line, nine people back, and I come back again. I'm like, well, what happened? And then 30 seconds later, I'm like, in the back of the line. And thankfully, the person who was the manager of Wawa knew who I was. And they're like, would you like me to pull her off so you can, you know? I was like, that'd be wonderful. And she shared her whole story with me. And, and because of my page, we are able to help them and stuff like that. But the point is this. A clerk. You don't know what can happen if you honestly, sincerely ask, how are you really doing? Bringing hope wherever we are, you know? So, yeah, so that's the one thing. And the second thing is, and I don't mean to be controversial, but I meet Jesus when I meet these people. Because Jesus says that 
when you are going to the prisons, when you're going to all these different places, there I am among them. When I meet these people who are struggling, who are hurting, or I'm meeting the Jesus who wants so desperately for them to know him. And that has changed everything. Because I am not seeing people come to Jesus with what I do, but you know what? My ministry is to plant the seeds. But may God send other people behind me who are going to water. You know? So, yeah. Um... Is there anything else that you want to share this morning? Yeah. To help us in this area? Yeah. Jesus is among us right now. But Jesus is also with you when you go out. May you prayerfully ask Jesus, and be careful, he will answer this prayer. But may you prayerfully ask Jesus to bring up situations and people that you can bring him to. And you know what's interesting? I've never had anyone, I've shared Jesus with hundreds of people, I've never had anyone argue with me about Jesus. You know why? Because we're talking about our life. We're talking about our stories. We're talking about what they have experienced, and I'm talking about what I have experienced. I've never had to convince anyone how real Jesus is to me. And if you treat people with the same dignity that you are willing to hear them without arguing with them, with their point. I never say to someone when they're telling me their point of view or telling me their life that they're wrong. Because I'm not there to judge them. I'm there to love them. Let them come to know Jesus. Let them come to walk with Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit convict them. And as we disciple them, it's in discipleship that we let go of things and we become more like Jesus. But when we're meeting someone cold off the street, gay or whatever, you know, or they're, if there's somebody who is, is you know, influenced by evil spirits, whatever it is, our job, my job at least, is not to say that you're wrong. My job is to say that I know the who one who loves you where you are. And then through discipleship comes the change. That's the difference. Our, we're not to engage in a culture of war. We're to engage in a Jesus of love. Yeah. Amen. All right. Amen. Well, um, after this, we're to have communion after this. And we have what we call ministry time where um, people are available for prayer. Um, anything you've heard this morning that you may want to respond to that you can come forward and receive prayer, uh, can you be available? Yeah, I would love that? that. Great. Um, can we give it a round of applause for, for Gregory here? Thank you, brother. Yeah.